Zone, podcasts featuring interviews and commentary from Animal Rights Zone, the online social network for humans who seek justice for other animals. You can find us on the web at www.arzone.net. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. In today's episode, Tim Guy and I will be joined by ethologist, author, public speaker and vegan advocate, Dr. Jonathan Balcom. Dr. Balcom, who has three biology degrees, including a PhD in ethology, which is the study of animal behaviour, from the University of Tennessee, has also published over 40 scientific papers on animal behaviour, humane education and animal research. He's the author of four books, The Use of Animals in Higher Education, Problems, Alternatives and Recommendations, Pleasurable Kingdom, Animals and the Nature of Feeling Good, Second Nature, The Inner Lives of Animals, and The Exultant Ark, a pictorial tour of animal pleasure. Jonathan was formerly the Senior Research Scientist with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine and is currently Chair of the Animal Studies Department with the Humane Society University. Jonathan, we're really looking forward to speaking with you today. Thanks for joining us and welcome to AR Zone. It's a pleasure to be here, Carolyn. There is so much we'd like to cover with you today, Jonathan, but I'd like to begin by asking you to speak about your role at the Humane Society University. Could you please speak about the university and more specifically what you're working on and hoping to achieve there? Sure. Humane Society University is a very new project and uh, we started offering degree programs in 2009. We have uh, bachelor's degrees and master's of science degrees as well as a graduate certificate in three main departments my department animal studies animal policy and advocacy and humane leadership and uh, um, we are the first university that's dedicated to providing a context of animal ethics and animal protection and if you like more broadly human animal studies throughout our curriculum and we probably have currently 120 maybe active students, so we're fledgling, we're very small, but we're very excited about what we do. Um, as department chair of a very, very small university, I wear many hats. I, I teach courses, it's mo- mainly online courses, so students can be located anywhere in the world to take courses with us. I also am the student advisor for my department, and I help to develop curriculum. I developed a new course in animal sentience, which will be offered sometime in the coming school year. Uh, I hire faculty. I help develop policy. So really kind of very broad um, series of roles with such a small and new university. Thanks, Jonathan. You mentioned that this is for anybody throughout the world, so the courses can be accessed by anybody? Yeah, if people go to our website, www.humanesocietyuniversity.org, they can learn more about what we offer. We do require a minimum of two years of college-level education. That's post-secondary level education for students to enroll in our School of Continuing, sorry, in our College of Arts and Sciences programs. However, we also have a School of Continuing Education, which offers various workshops and, and such. Uh, that may be more location-dependent, but um, students don't have to have any particular prerequisites to, to, uh, to learn from our School of Continuing Education. That sounds like a wonderful resource. Thanks, Jonathan. Jonathan, one of the uh, administrators of AR Zone is Ronnie Lee. Um, and Ronnie can't be with us tonight, but he asks this question of each of our guests, and it's become something of a tradition in our podcast. So I'm going to ask it uh, to you on his behalf. The question is, what led you to become vegan and to begin working within the animal advocacy movement? 
It's a great question, um, and thanks, Ronnie. Even though you're not here for me to thank you, um, it really the first step for me was was my my birth, and I I mean that very seriously because I I don't remember an occasion in my life when I I didn't care about animals from from my very earliest memories uh, of a time when I would hug my um, little teddy bear and never let it be separated from me. Uh, all through childhood, I was very interested in and sensitive towards animals. I would go out of my way not to step on an insect on the on the sidewalk. It was just a very natural thing for me to have that empathy that says, well, that's a little creature that has a life. I have my life. I cherish mine. Why wouldn't I think that animal cherishes its life? So the roots of my advocacy for animals and my ultimate ultimately becoming a vegan are are, are very deep and go right to the core of my uh, my life really uh, the beginnings of my life so that was sort of where it started and I, I do credit my parents with a lot of that they they instilled in me um a, a, a caring attitude about animals my family are british uh, i was i was born in england left when i was quite young but I think the Brits have had a historically, for all their faults and foibles, they have tended to be world leaders in humane concern about animals. So maybe that's some something of a cultural thing there. Maybe, but it's I feel it's a, a product of nature and nurture. In my case, I, I feel like um, I was nurtured with to be concerned about animals by my parents, but I was also born with a predisposition to be concerned about them. But it was probably into my 20s before I really began to ask the hard questions about our relationship with animals and how that, how my life fits into that. There was never any question that I didn't want to cause animal suffering, but such are the currents of our lifestyle and the way a culture influences us that I was into my mid-20s before I realized that I needed to make a fundamental change. I took a year off school and traveled to India for sort of a self-exploration and exploration of a part of the world I'd not seen. And it was on the um, on the eve of leaving for that trip that I made the decision to become vegetarian, and knowing that India, with all the Hindu population, has more vegetarians than any other country. So that was that step. And then it wasn't too many years after that that I realized that the way animals are treated in the production of dairy products, even though they're not immediately killed for those products, They still end up, of course, going to slaughter. But the way they're treated beforehand was unconscionable as well. And so I didn't want to support those industries that are doing that to animals. Uh, So that was the decision to to stop eating dairy products as well, which we typically define as, as veganism. Of course, veganism can be more broadly defined as a lifestyle choice. And I definitely regard myself as not merely um, a nutritional or food vegan, but a, a lifestyle vegan. I, I try not to support any industries that harm animals. And so that means not buying leather shoes and belts and such. And my wallet is made of hemp, which I suppose means I could smoke it one day when I'm finished using it as a wallet. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's, a, it's an effort. And I do like to emphasize the problem with the V word, like vegan and vegetarian and clubby, and it's like you are or you're not. Uh, no one can can be vegan in the sense of eliminating harm to animals. If you live and breathe and walk, especially if you get in a car, if you live a life, a normal life, you're going to affect others adversely in some cases. So it isn't about perfection. Um, it's about making an effort. It's about making a, being conscious and conscientious about your role in the world and how you affect 
uh, other sentient beings. And that's very uplifting. It's not a sacrifice. It's a lifestyle and it's joyous. And I feel great every day for knowing that I'm doing my, my little bit to help the planet be a better place to live in. Jonathan, I really like your definition there. I think I totally agree with you. I don't think that there's any such thing as cruelty-free. And I think that the typical definition of veganism is as far as possible and practical. And, you know, no one can draw lines for me and I can't draw lines for anybody else. So I, I absolutely agree with the definition you just used. You focus on the ability of other animals to feel pleasure rather than pain. Why is that important to you? As a scientist, or one doesn't even need to be a scientist probably to know that we, we've taken a great deal of interest in animal pain as, a, as, a, as an academic subject, uh, which is important because pain is very uh, an urgent problem that needs to be solved and resolved for any creature that's experiencing it. And perhaps that's why we have emphasized pain. Uh, I know of at least 23 English language scholarly journals that are dedicated to the subject of pain. They actually have the word pain in the title of the journal. And uh, no one can name me a single journal that has the word pleasure in it because there are not any. And that's an incredible imbalance. I would like to see a lot more attention paid to the positive experiences of life because they are so important. We are not just pain avoiders. And when I say we, I mean the collective we, not just humans, but sentient animals as well. Not just pain avoiders. We're also pleasure seekers. And um, so my a lot of my academic work, my writings and my books in the last 12 years have been uh, focused on trying to bring a little more balance to that, trying to draw some more attention to animals' capacity to, for pleasure. And pleasure, uh, there's, there's good reasons why other animals should experience pleasure, and I don't think I even need to go into that. Anyone who's lived with a dog or cat doesn't probably need convincing that they love a belly rub and a you know, a scratch under the collar and to get their food and go for a walk or that sort of thing. Um, but the implications of pleasure are, I think, really profound. If if a being, a being who can enjoy things has a quality of life and uh, another, so to use some philosophical jargon, they have intrinsic value. That is value beyond the utilitarian value. Of, of a being, say, you know, a cow to the dairy farmer is valuable because the dairy farmer can sell the cow for, for money and sell the milk for money, and that's not the kind of value I'm talking about. That's utilitarian value, but intrinsic value is the value that the cow has of her own life. And if a cow can enjoy nursing her calf, if she gets to keep the calf, um, if she can enjoy eating apples or going out and foraging in the field or running or stretching her legs after being indoors for a while, all of these things can be enjoyable. The feel of sun on the back. Um, there's so many bases for, for pleasure in life for a sentient being. Well, that means the animal has a quality of life and that means life is worth living. And really, uh, um, it follows from that that death is harmful. And that's really not something we've given a lot of consideration to ethically, to death in animals. We're all happy about the idea of, uh, of humane death or humane slaughter and euthanasia. And we hear these terms, really. I mean, humane slaughter, to me, is a, an oxymoron. I guess the, really the point I'm trying to make here is that the, the capacity for pleasure endows an animal with gre greater value in its life, in his or her life, than if we don't appreciate their capacity for pleasure. Jonathan, what are the implications in regard to our relations with other animals and our moral obligations toward them when and if we accept that so many other ind individuals other than human are capable of enjoying life and, they and that they actively seek pleasure? 
Yeah, I mean, it raises the stakes, doesn't it? It, it, yeah. it means that our responsibilities, our duties to them are greater than if they were merely um, only capable of avoiding pain. Uh, it means that killing them has moral weight. I mean, I suppose we would say that killing has moral weight anyway, but I think the main reason of that is the pain of death. We we associate death with pain, which is to say that if if the only moral significance of death or killing is pain, then if we can speak of um, humane killing, and I think that can be achieved, the the you know the shot of sodium pentobarbital at the vet, vet's office, or even better still in the home for say a very elderly cat or dog who is beginning to suffer from health issues and maybe their quality of life is not worth continuing. I realize that's a decision we make and they don't make. Um, so we can talk about uh, humane euthanasia or euthanasia, um, but. So often it's not the case. You know, we're talking about killing animals for for ends in situations that do cause suffering. But um, we we have to we have to realize that killing an animal who's healthy, and that's really the point I'm getting to here. Killing an animal who's healthy, who has the potential to continue living a life that has rewards, um, is really a, a, a morally problematic thing, right? It's 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 something that's well. But frankly, it's bad. It's a bad thing from that animal's perspective. That was my cat. (laughs) He was just agreeing with me. (laughs) I heard heard him. I read something uh, just the other day. Uh, A philosopher, uh, Christine Korsgaard, wrote that um, our obligations to other animals uh, is to not uh, use them in ways that they would object to if they could. And she listed some of the things that she thought that animals probably wouldn't object to, like perhaps uh, being companion animals and some other things. But she said certainly it's um, not likely that any animal would consent to being killed uh, prematurely or, um, to use her words, tortured on in in a uh, scientific experiment. Is that sort of what you're getting at? Uh, yes, Tim, I, I am getting at that. I mean, I think common sense can carry us a long way, and common sense tells me that being used in a harmful experiment, um, or the other example you gave, are not things that animals want. We can usually, you know, there may be gray areas, but we can usually make a pretty assured judgment as to what an animal does and does not appreciate happening to them. Uh, even though animals don't talk with the kind of language we do in most cases, uh, they communicate pretty clearly how they're feeling. If you could see Micah, my cat here right now, you'd see a very contented cat who's really enjoying having his, uh, his side of his neck rubbed, and he's he's purring. Another way that they convey to us that they're enjoying it, the fact that he's staying or that I can get his brush and stump it on the carpet and he comes running for it. Actually, his sister Megan is more likely to do that. And you can actually watch a, a 35-second YouTube video called Cat Pleasure, which shows her doing that. Uh, it's pretty easy to tell what animals like, and similarly, we can usually tell what they don't like, what's not in their interests. They run away from it, they fall in pain, they they show stress. Uh, you know, so it, like I say, we don't. It doesn't take a lot of creativity um, to to realize what's what's good and what's not good for them. Common sense can give us a lot of guidance. Of course, there are situations where we have to intervene, and that may cause pain to an animal to try and make the animal better, just as we have to put up with pain when we go to the the, um, dentist or the doctor. And we know that's in our best interests. And unfortunately for the animals, they usually don't know it's in their best interests. 
Uh, and so we do, we do have to face some quandaries sometimes. But by and large, I think we know what's good and what's bad for them. Jonathan, I'd like to ask you about a topic that's of particular interest to me. Could you please speak about what you believe we know of the complex inner lives and the cognitive ability of fishes? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I've been researching fishes for my next book, which will be focused on them because, A, they're the most collectively and numerically the most exploited group of vertebrate animals on the planet, and B, uh, there is no real book of advocacy uh, for fishes, um, and that needs to be changed. So, yeah, I mean, fishes, they're, they're vertebrates. They've got all the sensory systems we have, you know, vision, smell, taste, uh, touch, hearing. They do actually communicate a lot by sound underwater. They communicate a lot by um, chemical communication, which is analogous to our sense of smell. Um, and um, they move their eyes in their eye sockets, even though if most people, we, we often don't notice that. And uh, they also have other senses that we don't have, such as um, electroreception for some species. Um, some fishes have, uh, most fishes, bony, all bony fishes have a lateral line, which is very sensitive to pressure changes and water movements. And there's some other senses they have. So they're very keenly tuned into their environment, which is also to say that they're sentient. There have been some naysayers, even up to the present time, who claimed that fishes do not feel pain or are not sentient. But some a recent series, a series of recent scientific studies, meticulous studies, clearly show that not to be the case, as we would expect from a pretty complex vertebrate who can move away from bad things and has been evolving for hundreds of millions of years. Fishes are clearly sentient. But there's much more to them than that, as you said in your question. I think you use the word cognition, that this is the capacity to process mental information, to think. And uh, the cognitive skills of fishes are pretty impressive. They, they recognize individuals. They don't just swim willy-nilly with any shoal. They have their preferred shoal mates. Um, they um, are, have very good memories. They don't have the, the three-second memory of popular myth. Uh, studies show that uh, fishes who were learned to escape through a little hatch 11 months earlier, they remember the same escape hatch when they're suddenly presented with a, a threat um, 11 months later, even though they haven't been in that situation during the whole time. And other fishes uh, who don't know that are slower to react, but they quickly learn from observation. So they you start using the escape hatch as well. Uh, fishes, there's a remarkable list of, of different cognitive skills that fishes have with spatial memory and uh, orientation, um, monitoring others. Uh, I, I mean, I could go on. I, I don't know how much people want to hear, but um, suffice to say, fishes aren't just automatons in the water. They are individuals um, who can think and I would say can feel. Well, they can certainly feel pain, and I would say pleasure, and there's good evidence for that too. But I would say beyond that, they also feel emotions. They know what fear is. They probably know anticipation, planning, excitement. They are sentient vertebrates, like the ones who live on land. Thanks, Jonathan. Given all that information, why do you think that most humans are still reluctant to recognize that fishes actually have inner lives at all? And as you mentioned, why do you think fishes perhaps along with insects, do remain among the most exploited? Right. Well, in answer to your first question, why are we so reluctant to embrace fishes as fellow sentient beings on this earth? I think it's just alienation, and the alienation comes from 
you know, our, our, our naivete and ignorance tends to be in the realms of where we don't know um, or where we haven't had a good connection. We're afraid of the dark. We, we don't know mm-hmm. what's out there. And so with fishes, you know, they've been living in a different realm from us for so long. Well, they still do. But, of course, technological advances allow us to probe their lives and to appreciate what's going on under there better than ever before with filming techniques and, and acoustic devices and what have you. So I think it's really a, a physical alienation that we've had from them. We just don't live in their realm and we don't see their facial expressions. We don't uh, think that we don't hear them screaming. We don't uh, we're just not sensorily tuned in to what's going on with them. And uh, so they seem to be cold and lifeless, so not lifeless, but aliens to us. I, I love uh, I love what D.H. Lawrence said in his poem, The Fish. He said, no fingers, no hands and feet, no lips. No tender muzzles, no wistful bellies, no loins of desire, none. I would say, much as I love Lawrence's writing, um, they do have loins of desire. Uh, they do have feelings and they do uh, anticipate things. Fishes will line up to wait their turn to be uh, plucked over and given a spa treatment by other fishes that are called cleaner fishes. And uh, they will turn to those same cleaners, their business partners, and you don't eat your business partner, they don't eat each other. Uh, the cleaner may swim right into the mouth of the much larger client and uh, pluck away at bits of uh, plaque, perhaps, like a dental treatment, and then swim through the gills. Uh, so that's an example of, of a behavior that appears to be driven by reward. It's a classic mutualism, just as the um, the, the bee uh, benefits by getting nectar. The plant gets benefits by having pollen moved around, while the cleaner benefits by getting some nutrition from parasites and algae and whatever else they pluck off. And the client benefits by getting this cleaning service. Uh, But again, I don't think these animals are thinking about evolutionary fitness and Darwinian benefits. They're doing it because it feels good. So uh, that was a bit of a long-winded answer to, um, and a little off track perhaps from uh, your question about why we're reluctant, but really the crux of it is is this, the alienation. They've, they've evolved in a different realm and we're not very well tuned into them. Second question, why why do we exploit them so much? I think it's a it's part of the same dynamic, isn't it? That we're just not, we don't understand them so well and we, we, we can easily dismiss them as not feeling much. Um, it's convenient, but it's probably not very accurate as, as the science is beginning to show us. So I think that's the that's the quick answer to that question. It's once again the alienation that we have that uh, makes us think it's okay to use them to our own ends. I've heard you speak about the feeding stations that, of fishes before, and I think it's an absolutely amazing story. There's actually a video that I've posted in AR Zone. If anybody else would like to listen to it in, in a little bit more detail, it's it's just an amazing story. So thank you for um, touching on that. Sure. Jonathan, one of our other admins says uh, this. He says, can you talk about the way that you've presented some of the ideas that you've spoken about today to the general public? and the reactions and the feedback that you've received? And have you noticed over the years any changes in attitudes or receptivity from the audiences that you've spoken with? Certainly the, the media that I convey the information to audiences is through my, my writing, my books in particular, and I do quite a lot of public speaking, as Carolyn mentioned in the introduction. In fact, I'm just heading off to California on Saturday. I'll, I'll give five lectures at universities, and I'll speak at two different uh, Thanksgiving events for animal sanctuaries, where, by the way, turkeys will be fed rather than eaten, which, which is a nice twist. 
And uh, so the public speaking is important and immensely rewarding. I enjoy doing that a great deal. So that's sort of those are the main media. Of course, this kind of thing, media interviews, um, social networking, such as Facebook, and I occasionally tweet, not as often as birds do or as probably I should. And um, the reaction, uh, people are fascinated by the information. I mean, I, I suppose the audiences I speak to are not a random sample from the general public. Most people in my audiences probably are quite interested in animals. It's probably what brought them there in the first place. And people who are going to buy my book or pick it up and read it already have an interest in animals. But the information is always well received. People are just fascinated by animals. Animals are just, they're like other worlds in the sense that we can see that they're experiencing life, but... We so I so want to know what their umwelt is like. It's a German word, essentially meaning you know their sensory world. You know what is it like to be in my cat's body? More and more to the point, what is it like to be in their mind? And I think people are fascinated by that kind of question, and a lot of the scientific studies are really beginning to shine some light. Yes, we'll never get inside a cat's brain and be a cat, but we can do studies and show how cats respond to certain things. We can show that they um, they have pleasures and pains, they have interests. They have motivations. They have various emotions. And that's great stuff. And people people lap it up. They're really, really very interested in that. So the reaction is generally very very positive, very interested. In terms of second part of your question, what sort of changes? It's hard to gauge change over the course of 10, 20 years that I've been working in animal protection. I mean, I can certainly say that just broadly... Um, how people react to animals in general, it's its improving in terms of our awareness of animals. Um, it's its geographically varied, of course. Uh, you know, From a global perspective, we're still going in the wrong direction for the simple reason that there are more people on Earth, and that is an elephant in the room that should be discussed much more as human overpopulation. And the other reason is that uh, you know parts of the world are consuming more meat, and that's more than making up for the fact that many countries are now showing a decrease in meat consumption, including the United States of America, which shows several percentiles decreases of consumption. I think maybe Australia is showing that too, and some other countries in Europe. So there are signs of change. Cultural change happens very quickly. As for changes in my audiences, hard to say. What I can say is I do hear from readers or listeners quite often through my website who say that they heard me on on speaking somewhere or they heard a YouTube watched a YouTube video or read something and it's it's motivated them to make a change to their lives. I don't take all the credit for that. It's mostly them. They they're the ones who have to make that that change, but it's very um, thrilling to get that kind of information. So it's very nice to know that the work I do is making a difference for some people out there. I've um, read some information about animal cognition and behavior, um, a couple of textbooks and some other things, and I've talked to some uh, philosophy professors about animal cognition and what we can learn about ourselves through studying other animals and and, and uh, it does seem, from the conversations I've had, it does seem that more and more people are starting to um, think in terms of, of the, the what we can gain by understanding the similarities between us rather than thinking of the differences. So I think that's I think that's pretty cool. So, but yeah, and I think going, I'm sorry. Go ahead. 
Oh, I was just going to say, you know, knowledge is power. It, knowledge is very empowering, and we are in an era of knowledge where where we are expanding our, our knowledge of animals at a at a higher rate than any time in history. And also, it's the dissemination of knowledge is is much faster now that we have the internet. Uh, it's a very powerful medium, and it's something we didn't have just less than a generation ago. And I think. That combined with some of the geopolitical changes we're seeing with China in particular, which, you know, is, it makes up not far short of one quarter of the world's human population. China is westernizing a bit, and that has some negative implications, but it has some really positive ones, too. The growth of, a, of an animal rights movement is beginning is definitely happening now in parts of Asia, and it's it's sorely needed. So... Um, these are positive trends that we're beginning to see. Well, to follow up on that, then there's, uh, I'm sure that you uh, heard of the Declaration on Consciousness that was issued by a group of scientists in July of this year, 2012. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure that I'm right on this, but I believe that it was 15 scientists that attended a conference and they signed a declaration saying that they recognize and that it ought to be obvious that uh, mammals and birds particularly um, possess the neural, neurological substrates that uh, generate consciousness. What was curious to me in that was that some of those very scientists who signed that declaration said that nonetheless they're going to continue to experiment on other animals. And so I'm, 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 a, I'm dismayed by that because I think it just shows that having the information isn't all that it takes to make the sort of connection that we'd like people to make. Do you are you aware of what I'm talking about, and can you comment on it? Well, Tim, you have to be aware that scientists have a, a penchant for being the last ones to come to a realization about an inconsistency or uh, an ethical gap. Uh, I say that slightly tongue in cheek. Scientists are are smart people, and they're incredibly innovative and clever, but they also tend to be a bit dogmatic and they often are very re resistant to change. I mean, humans in general are resistant to change, uh, but scientists, I think, perhaps even more so. So, um, I, you know, I think we can look at that Cambridge Declaration as a, as a glass half empty or a glass half full, and I, I prefer to, to go with the latter because it has some very nice and strong statements uh, to the effect of, as you say, mammals and birds, um, being conscious, and I think there's language, I don't have it in front of me, something to, the, something to the effect of being conscious in the same way that humans are. And I thought that was a really, uh, a very strong statement. So it, it, it has some really good things about it. Sure, there, fishes are excluded and maybe some other groups of animals as well. Uh, so one can certainly gripe about it and uh, legitimately. Um, uh, but you know, it made it made news. It's something that's been said. No one was goading or making anyone say anything, and yet these scientists proactively got together and made this declaration. One hopes that uh, some of that seeps into the general public's minds and legislators, so that helps to motivate uh, positive uh, change for animals in society. So. It's far from ideal, but it's a lot better than nothing, and so I'm, I'm very glad to see things like that happening. I, I would agree with you, and I would say that, that that's uh, a good step towards normalizing um, a change in thinking about other animals. And I think in that respect, if, if that's all that it does, is lend some credence to the idea that we should, you know, that the ideas that, that, that you've put forth become more normalized, then I think it's a good thing.
Yeah, that's a really important point. Uh, the word normalize, you know, to, for something to sort of become a sort of default way of thinking, that that's really so important and so fun foundational. I, I, I think of sharks, you know, getting back to fishes, and sharks by some definitions are not fishes at all. The sharks are totally, they're as different from the bony fishes as mammals are from birds. But nonetheless, thinking about sharks, you know, they're, they're, they're old, the old, deeply seated negative impressions we have of them. I just encountered a, a guy on Facebook the other day who dives, he and his brother, they dive, they're scuba divers and photo underwater photographers and filmers, and they they swim with sharks, and they're just swimming around with great white sharks and sand tigers, and we think, oh my God, they're what, how, how brave and how risky. These guys know sharks in a different way. You know, sharks, as far as I can tell from what I've read now and seen, the shark quote-unquote attacks that we hear about until we're blue in the face, they're rare accidents, they're rare mistakes. You know, there's a lot of humans out there swimming in the water. It's pretty incredible how incredibly rare it is that a shark bites a human, given how many humans are out there. Uh, also, if the sharks really had an attitude towards us, they'd be biting us a lot more often because we kill, you know, close to over 70, probably over 70 million a year of sharks. Anyway, you know, but the impressions of sharks are beginning to shift. Uh, you know, there was something like eight guys came to Washington, D.C. a couple of years ago and lobbied for uh, passage of, I think it was shark finning legislation or some pro some pro shark legislation, legislation that was in the shark's favor. And what was very, very special about those eight individuals was that they were all victims of bites and, and injuries inflicted by sharks who probably mistook them for seals or something else so we, we that, that's and that sort of i see that as an example of shifting slowly towards a new norm a new way of looking at animals that's different from how we've looked at them before through a very smaller lens in the past one more question on the, that's related to this same topic so in the united states the federal uh, animal welfare act um is supposed to offer some sort of minimal protection to other animals, but, but doesn't include chickens. And in the U.S., they estimate something like eight or nine billion chickens are slaughtered every year for food. So wh what do you think it takes to normalize the, the sort of things that we're talking about? And how, do, how does it... How do, <laughs> how do we get that shifted? How do we change... You know, I'm thinking, to, to the words of a few scientists here and there, is it, is, it, is it getting us where we need to be? This is a long, hard climb, I guess, is what I'm trying to get at. I'm, I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm just trying to understand, you know, it's just eight or nine billion is just a number that's almost unfathomable to me. Yeah, uh, it translates to about 300 chickens per second who are killed in the U.S. for human mm. consumption. Uh, just to back up to the Animal Welfare Act, it's even it's even worse than that. It, the, 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 there's loop, loopholes, or essentially the Animal Welfare Act for protecting um, animals uh, applies only to animals in research. So um, if you're a cow, for instance, uh, being used in research, the Animal Welfare Act means that you, you have to the researcher has to be, has to satisfy certain requirements by the law. But if you're a cow going to slaughter, it doesn't apply to you. 
there are separate laws that are being passed, humane slaughter laws and that sort of thing. Again, I think humane slaughter is a bit of an oxymoron, but nonetheless, you know, downer laws and this sort of thing. Uh, but those are separate from the Animal Welfare Act. So the Animal Welfare Act uh, does offer some, as you say, minimal protections to animals in research. Uh, but even there, rats, mice, and what I mean by that is uh, Norway rats and house mice and birds, which of course would include chickens, are exempt from even protections un- in animal experimentation under the Animal Welfare Act. And those three groups of animals comprise well over 90% of all of them. So that's a huge, huge loophole, and it really um, makes that Animal Welfare Act pretty impotent in terms of helping animals in, even in research. Um, as it, when it comes to the 8 billion or so that you mentioned that are sl- who are slaughtered for human consumption for meat and, and as part of the dairy, pro- dairy um, industry, that they're not protected. And that's a huge problem. And there is a great increase in efforts to change that. There's this controversial views about, um, you know, when we make humane changes, we're still saying it's okay. Um, I personally, you know, this sort of humane, humane meat idea, you know, oh, it's humane meat. Oh, that's okay. Then I can buy that and have that. Of course, I would never subscribe to that and, and eat it. But nonetheless, um, a lot of people are still eating meat and will continue to. And so my personal view on that is that these, um, relatively small steps are better than no steps and we obviously need to keep our eye on the prize and continue to work for the abolition ultimately of these exploitative use exploitative uses of animals that cause them suffering and harm and death Um, in the meantime i personally favor legislation that makes the quality of life of an animal caught up in factory farming less bad i won't say better well well i don't like that's just semantics, but less bad than it used to be. So these are controversial issues that everyone grapples with, and you guys and Ronnie may have a different view on that, and many people do. Um, but we we can certainly obviously do so much better than we're doing now. And that gets back to the veganism thing or the vegetarianism thing. It's so one of the great rewards of it is the empowerment that it gives an individual that quite aside from legislation and procedures and what's going on out there, you as an individual, we as individuals can make a, a, a measurable impact every day with what we put on the end of that fork. And that's extremely empowering and gratifying, at least to me it is. Yeah, uh, I agree with you um, about that 100%. And I'll, and I'll also say that I think that as a movement, if we, if we deny to people that the small changes that they're willing to make have value, then it's going to be less likely that they'll be willing to make greater changes down the road. So I don't, I wouldn't go out and, I agree with you, I wouldn't go out and, and, and buy any so-called humane product, but um, I, I think it's um, important that we realize where people are on their journey and what it takes for them to move further down the road. So I agree with everything that you said. Yeah, I just if I can make one other point about that, um, that I think resonates to some, with something that was said earlier. I forget what it was, but, but another part of that kind of dynamic where where we have, you know, people read about legislation where chickens are going to get a little more room. That also is part of the change in the norm, change in the mindset. It 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 says tacitly or explicitly that a chicken matters. 
it says that a ch- the quality of a, chick- a chicken has a quality of life. It says that they they have moral traction. And you know what? That's more than we used to give them credit for. They had no moral traction before. We didn't give them any consideration. And I'm, when I say we, I'm talking about society. And so there's that's another sort of ancillary benefit to to this these kind of humane law changes where we're giving them you know it's pathetic on one level we're giving them you know a, a few tens of square inches more than they had before in their lifelong cage. Um, it sends a message that they matter, and I think that's really important. I think, like you said, Jonathan, I think it's it is very controversial issue, and I think that the problem I have with those those incremental steps is that some something like an extra square inch or so here or there in in, in the cage of a laying hen is really not making any sort of substantial difference to her life. But when we regard that as a huge victory, and we claim that as a huge victory, which I think can um, encourage people to continue their consumption of eggs or even increase their consumption of eggs, I think that's that's where I have a problem with it. It's the claims that are made with these sort of reforms that um, that I see as problematic. Yeah, I, I share that view. Um, but if, if you're talking about, say, them having the ability to scratch um, a substrate that they never had before, that they're not living on wire, um, let's say, and I don't know if this is the case um, in some of the legislation that's being passed, and they don't have that, you know that end of their sensitive end of their beak seared off when they're young. Then I think you know we're getting into more significant um, mm. welfare improvements. Um, so there are there are different levels of of um, significance to some of these things. I, I think we're I think I think we I do understand what you're saying and I accept what you're saying. You know a few inches here and there may just not mean anything for the animal's quality of life, and we have to take each measure each. Um, change um, and, and assess it with a critical mind and a critical eye. You said that less horrific is better than more horrific and I, I couldn't possibly understand why anybody could argue with that. Um, Jonathan, can I ask you um, to please explain the differences between language and communication? For just as an example, there's the waggle dance that honeybees do and another example is the ways that some mammals say, for example, prairie dogs, might signal specific types of danger to each other. Um, say, prairie dogs would, will have a different way to signal that there's a human with a gun as opposed to, say, a domestic dog that's approaching. Right. Yeah, great question. Uh, I, it gives me an opportunity to mention a book that's coming out by an bi- American biologist who I greatly, greatly admire. His name's Khan Slobodchikov, and his book is called Chasing Dr. Doolittle, and it's actually coming out this month. Um, I read a pre-published publication edition, and he really sticks his neck out for a scientist by arguing and I think giving good evidence that animals, many more species of animals, have a true language than we give them credit for, that they're actually using words that symbolize things that are separate in time and space. And I think that's probably the best definition of language that I've seen that distinguishes it from merely communication, not to belittle communication. Communication is is a, an important phenomenon and, and meaningful in itself, and language, of course, is a form of communication. But I think that the, what distinguishes language from communication, in, in my mind, from the definitions I've seen, is, is that a language um, conveys specific information through some kind of symbolic uh, stimulus so you're you're making a sound that denotes and for instance with a with a with an acoustic we usually think of it as a vocal thing um, you're making a sound that uh, 
that is describing something that is not that it may not even be present at the time and that's particularly compelling with with honeybees because when they do these waggle dances they're conveying information about the the quality the direction and the location the distance of a food source that is not present it's not there it's something that the bee who's doing the dance encountered maybe a half an hour ago and so it's really truly uh, a true language um, separate in space and time the information and yet we're talking about an invertebrate, an insect, um, a group of animals we have so many biases against. So, um, and then the prairie dogs, you know, you mentioned them, that they're an example of, of many species now that are being found to have a very, a, a very sophisticated um, way of conveying information, particularly about danger, you know, these alarm calls. And as you say, um, they will modify, within just a few days, they'll modify their call to, to denote the individual who carries the gun or somebody who's wearing yellow or green, and it's not its not sure why um, they modify calls for different colors, but it's been shown that they will do that. And so these kind of studies, the fact that we're doing the studies is great, and they're revealing aspects of these animals' lives, inner lives, that we would have thought was fantasy just a generation ago. Some of what you said um, is controversial, though, isn't it? I mean, it seems to me that they're they're... For example, in the case of um, honeybees, from what I've read, it's not the case that we think that honeybees are able to not do the waggle dance. In other words, they don't choose to do the dance in the way that we might think of choosing to, to communicate with someone else. It's more that when they've been out to find honey, they come back and they just do the waggle dance. And they do it in a way that's not inventive. So the the honeybee, when it does the waggle dance the first time, it does it the same way that it does it the last time, and it does it the same way that every honeybee within its within its hive has ever done waggle dances. Could be, Tim, but it, that may be, you know, it's a bit presumptuous. I don't think the science has been done to show that. It could be bees can get into a peevish mood. And they are much less vigorous in their dance um, on another day that they would have done more vigorously for the same food source on another day. So, you know, I don't think we should assume that they're not feeling emotions even. Uh, I remember seeing a paper, of, of a mapping of the bee's brain, and it, and, and it was remarkable, the, as to use the jargon, the differentiation, the different uh, structures of the brain of a bee. Uh, there's a lot more complexity, and uh, Donald Griffin, who who was an American scientist of the 20th century, and he really has, takes a lot, deserves a lot of credit for the fact that these kinds of studies are being done, because he started writing about animal minds and animal thinking back in the 70s when it was very unfashionable to to think about that. And now, you know, cognitive ethology, the study of animal minds and animal thinking and cognition, has become a a de rigueur. It's it's a really important uh, discipline in the study of animal behavior. You know, he 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 writes in couple of his books about how, you know, just because they're small, just because insects are small and they have little brains or ganglions or whatever you want to call them, uh, you can get an incredible amount of complexity of behavior and cognition from a relatively small, and I say relatively because even though they may have a tiny fraction of the number of neurons in their brains and us, it doesn't take too many thousands of neurons to get millions of different kinds of connections that can be drawn among them. And so the, the potential for pretty for complex behavior, including 
the kind of flexibility on different occasions and maybe even moods and dispositions um, is not beyond possibility. We should be open to that possibility. Yeah, I, I, I don't deny that. I, I guess the thing that, that concerns me is that in some of the conversations, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking of casual conversations that I have uh, with, with people online and whatnot, is that it seems to me in some cases that what people are trying to assert is that other animals are like us in ways that that I think what pe- what it ends up in, to my mind it ends up creating a situation where animals only have value if they're like us. So it's important that they have language like we do because then that then that means that they're valuable like us. And I I always say we should just accept animals for how they are, the way they are. And it's not important to me whether or not bees use language. It's not important, you know, from from a consideration of of um, you know, from the moral question, I think it's interesting from a just from a you know from a you know, how does the world work sort of question. But it troubles mm-hmm. me somewhat that I I think sometimes these conversations end up being where we're wanting to anthropomorphize animals in order to then be able to justify why we think we should do this or not do that. So that that's really the reason I brought it up. Yeah, nice point, and and it's a nice word that I think captures that kind of how much like us are they uh, anthropocentric you know we tend to we tend to measure everything as if we're the yardstick as if we're the ultimate we're the we're the the measure where everything else has to measure up and that's so short-sighted because we are talking about different creatures with different capacities you know if if we had to compare our, our sense of smell with that of a domestic dog for instance uh, you know we pretty much suck we we, we have very <laughs> poor sense of smell and a dog's sense of smell, is I've read, is maybe one hundredth as good as a fish's in certain situations. And of course, that's that's maybe fish centric, but at least it's a refreshing change. And dogs don't happen to be smelling underwater, so that's uh, maybe a poor comparison. But I, it is interesting, isn't it, how we do hold us up as sort of the pinnacle? And this goes right back to Aristotle, you know, twenty-three centuries ago, with his idea of scala naturae, and humans are at the top of the pyramid, and everything else is kind of below. Instead of that sort of looking from the side with us on the top, I, I think it would make much more sense if we looked, we're looking at a bush or a tree from above. Um, so you don't have this hierarchy, hierarchy. You have diversity and you have, you have a much more, much less value laden, value driven uh, way of uh, looking at life and its diversity. Jonathan, could I ask you to please speak about the interconnectedness of all life on the planet? Um, specifically, I'm thinking of the ways that so-called predator species depend on so-called prey species and also vice versa. Sure. Uh, you know, that kind of stimulates me to, to sort of make a point that I like to make about wild nature and our rather skewed perception of it. It's skewed. Uh, we have a skewed perception of wild nature, I believe, because of the way popular the popular media, uh, television documentaries and books uh, and the like tend to portray wild nature. There's this deep-seated impression that it's all about a kill or be killed, it's red in tooth and claw, it's predator prey, it's competitive. You know, all those dynamics happen in wild nature. Um, but there's much more to it than that, and it gets back to the pleasure theme that we started with. There's a lot of reward in wild nature. Um, Food, sex, um, social companionship, um, 
touch, aesthetics. There's just a lot of sources of um, comfort, getting warm when you're cold, getting cool when you're hot. There's a lot of sources of pleasure, and animals do have leisure time. And for every competitive interaction that you could show me in nature, I'll show you a cooperative one. I'll show you probably five cooperative ones where you have um, mutual benefit, uh, po- pollination systems. Uh, you know that, that's it. That's the most successful plant-animal interaction in the world. There are huge, huge numbers of species of plants that have evolved. The flowering plants. You know, they 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 rely on animals to move pollen around. And what? How do they get them to do it? They reward them. They give them nectar. They give them a sweet liquid. And what do fruiting plants do? Well, they give them fruits, they give them nuts. And, you know, you could say, well, isn't it bad for the plant when the squirrel eats the nut? No, because the squirrel has, in the meantime, buried probably 500 nuts in different locations, essentially sowing the seeds. And through a combination of loss of memory or perhaps occasional mortality, that squirrel's not going to dig them all up again. So the squirrel is doing a wonderful service for the for the tree, even though the squirrel may eat most of the nuts the squirrel finds. It's a beautiful um, it's a beautiful arrangement. That's one of the lovely things about evolution. If you give all that complexity and you give it time, you're going to find exquisite uh, interactions between organisms. So this kind of discussion of how we tend to focus on predator prey, um, you know, there's a lot, there's so much goodness in nature that I think we could pay a lot more attention to. There's so many of the mutualisms where there's mutual benefit. Uh, both parties are gaining. Uh, it's kind of back to that glass full way of looking at nature rather than a glass empty. Do you think it would ever be possible to eliminate the killing of free-living animals by other free-living animals or all of the other forms of suffering that happen um, in the wild? And, and do you think it's even appropriate for humans to think that that's something that we should be trying to do? I don't. I personally don't. Obviously, we are responsible for the killing that we do, and that's where we, I believe, should focus our energies. I don't I don't want to make lions vegetarians. I mean, if lions evolved to become vegetarians and there was less suffering in the world, that would be a lovely thing to happen. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah. I don't think it's to intervene um, in that kind of way. When we can can intervene and avoid suffering for an animal, for an animal, um, the case can be made. And I think obviously there's situations where clearly we we should um, intervene. But I don't think we should try to stop uh, lions from being lions. I think that's beyond the, the realm of what is and is not our, our duty, our moral duty. So it can get a bit gray area and cloudy there. But there's not really, we don't need those scenarios to cloud our awareness of what we really can and definitely should do, which is to not deliberately and gratuitously make animals suffer for our own, for our own interests that can be met in other ways. I'd like to thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and very, very interesting. Before we let you go, though, is there anything that you'd like to say to our listeners that we've not thought to ask you? And can you please tell us what's in store for you in the future? I'll try and be brief, but uh, often I like to end my talks by saying that we humans are incredibly good at change. Cultural change happens a lot faster than evolutionary change, and we have made significant strides as a species in the past. Social issues, the African slave trade, the denial of voting rights to women, the colonialism era, uh, and the civil rights movement. These are examples of epoch-making social change. I believe that the next great social movement 
uh, will be the movement to emancipate animals from exploitation. And as a vegan, I probably won't be accountable for, for this prediction because I probably can't expect to live beyond about 150. <laughs> but I do believe we will look back on the 21st century as the century for the animals. As for my own personal life, I am working on a book on fishes, and it will be the first book that really um, presents the scientific basis for why we should come to fishes' defense, why we need a new attitude towards fishes, and I'm very excited about that, as I am to be teaching um, a new, this new course on animal sentience, which will debut sometime in the 2013-2014 uh, year. Fantastic. Do you have any sort of estimate when the fishes' book might be completed? Uh, I would estimate two to three years, but it's a guess. Okay. Jonathan, I want to thank you again for sharing your time with us. We appreciate it so much, and we appreciate all the work you're doing on behalf of other animals as well. Thank you. Well, Carolyn and Tim, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on your program. Thank you for listening to AR Zone. Please visit us online at www.arzone.net and look for us on iTunes.